So to begin tonight, I want us to open to John chapter number 15, John 15. This is going to be a um, very topical message. So we've got several several passages of scripture I want to reference and uh, a few that we will turn to for us to see it and get the picture. And uh, if I for some reason can't make it to one, you have it in your notes, you can look at it later. Uh, but I want to open with, uh, open with John 15, 16, and I've titled the message, Gospel Ministry Ordination. Gospel Ministry Ordination. And so I just want to read this text to open up with us tonight. This is where Jesus is talking with his disciples and uh, giving them instruction, really, tells them about the new commandment, about loving one another. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday morning. Uh, but here we find a, a specific instance where he says something that would apply in the subject we're looking at. He says in verse 16 of John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, we've all probably heard of someone being ordained into the gospel ministry. That's something that we've heard within our church and in Christian circles. Maybe some of us have even attended an ordination service of someone uh, the concept of what an ordination is or hearing about it, it's somewhat known, but understanding what it is and why it's important and how an ordination uh, comes about is not as commonly known among uh, churches. And that largely has to do with the fact that ordinations are not a regularly occurring event, are they? Uh, how, how often uh, do we go to an ordination or hear about one? Very few, right? When's the last time Lee Creek had an ordination? Don't know, right? It would have been pre-herald maybe. I mean, if there was one at all. There are some churches that never have an ordination, and some have never been to an ordination. So, so, so many Christians don't have any idea about what it actually is and why it's important. Uh, and so it's important for us to know why it's important and why is that. Well, an ordination really is the official recognition and consecration of a man into the gospel ministry by the church. Now, here's what we understand as we come through this subject. There is no greater ministry in this world than the ministry of the gospel. Someone once rightly said, if you're called to preach, don't stoop to be the president. And there's truth in that because the gospel ministry deals with eternal souls, not a temporal nation, not a temporal job. I'm not negating other jobs. God uses all of his people and whatever our vocation is for his glory. You have to do it to the best of your ability. But the Bible plainly teaches us there's a special significance upon the gospel ministry that God has put upon this. And so the gospel ministry has involved a few different offices and forms of service through church history. We recall, firstly, how that God set in place the office of apostles in the early church, and that's where we see the 12 and then a couple others later on. And right here we're in our own text, Jesus is talking to them who would be his apostles and how he has chose them. Now, this choosing, it, it applies soteriologically. Uh, it's a big fancy term for salvation. It applies to salvation, but it also applies for service. And so the word we find here is appointed. The word appointed, it's also translated as ordained in some translations, means to assign to some task or function. So it communicates this principle of someone being set apart for a specific work. And the office of the apostle was one that Jesus set his followers on, the twelve, and it was for carrying uh, out a unique authority. They even had spiritual gifts that they could use during that day and time, the apostolic era. 
But that office was limited to the early church for that specific era. There are no apostles today. All right, contrary to what some may say, the office of apostle ceases to exist. It had a specific purpose in that day and time. But that does not mean that God has stopped calling men among the church to serve him. So though the office of apostle has ceased, that doesn't mean all offices have ceased. God continues to call and use specific men for the office of pastor, for the office of missionary and evangelist. So if God has called these men to these offices, to these roles of service, how is that to be verified? How is that to be verified? How can the church trust a man as called of God to the gospel ministry? Just because anyone says, well, I'm called to the gospel ministry, should we put all of our confidence in that person, that they are an indeed God-called individual? You see, the church has a special role in this. The church has been given that authority and that function of, of recognizing God's called men. And this is where we see the importance. Ordination is a safeguard through the local church against uncalled men and unprepared men because both have often entered the ministry. Men who have not been truly called of God and men who have not been prepared to enter the ministry that maybe they have been called of God. So we're going to look at the biblical basis and details about ordination. What does the Bible have to say about it? Because that's really the only question that matters, right? What's the Bible say about it? So I've given you three basic points, and the bulk of it will be in one and two. The last one is just a closeout a concluding point. We won't spend much time there. But notice with me number one tonight, the biblical principle of ordination. The biblical principle of ordination. I broke this down into the Old and New Testament. Ordination in the Old Testament, firstly. Let's look at this for a moment. And just to begin this, I want us to understand this, that ordination, it describes the biblical concept of God's appointment of men to full-time ministry. It involves both the call of God upon a specific individual, but also the recognition of that call by the people of God. Both aspects are very important. So there is a personal and a public validation of God's call upon someone to serve him in a specific role. So God's means of calling and having men ordained to serve him has varied through the scriptures due to the way God has worked in certain eras of time. We're not under the old covenant anymore, right? We don't go to a temple or a tabernacle. We don't have a body of priests that make sacrifices. Uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have all of that. We're under the new covenant, which God has instituted his local church, the means by which we worship him and conduct the gospel ministry and keep the ordinances and all of these things. But to, to, to look at the Old Testament for a moment, back in the commonwealth of Israel, we see they had prophets, they had priests, they had kings. And uh, we look at the Old Testament and we can see specific instances of this concept of men being ordained to serve the Lord in some way. So I'll start firstly with the priests just for a moment. The priests were ordained to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. And we find this through Exodus, Exodus chapter 29. As you read through Exodus 29, you'll find the way priests were to be consecrated and set apart to their office. In this chapter, we see some of the regular service that they are going to perform as priests on behalf of the people. We see a preparation for it, we see a sin offering, we see two burnt offerings, we see one for the Lord and one for ordination. And so what we find is that this practice was a specific way of setting apart 
these certain men into the office of priest under the Old Covenant. Notice specifically the ordaining language. God says in verse 9 of Exodus 29, it's all in your notes, you don't have to turn there. He says that as he's coming through this, this preparation, all that's being said, you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. You ordain Aaron and his sons. So the word ordain used here, it, it, it refers to filling someone's hand to consecrate as a priest, to devote them to this specific cause. Now, this filling someone's hand may be somewhat of a, uh, a Hebrew imagery referring to their hand being filled with the sacrificial works of the tabernacle and the temple later on, that they would have to be consecrated to that service. But through this whole process of the chapter, Aaron and his sons are being set apart. They are being ordained to a sacred work of priesthood. Now, their office of, as priest, it was recognized not only by them and by God, but also by the people of Israel, right? It was known that if you're a Levite, you're a priest, and also by means of their attire and what they were doing. So they would be known among the people, being ordained both by their lineage and by even their garments. If you look later in the chapter, Exodus 29, 29, the holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. Watch what he says. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. So there was, there was special significance upon the garments of the priests. We won't go into that long study. Someday we might, and uh, might bore you, might excite you. Uh, but it's true. It's, it, there's a lot of truth there uh, about their, their garments. Later in the chapter, we learned that this process of ordaining them, it was a seven-day process conducted by Moses. Exodus 29, 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them. Ordain them. And every day you shall offer a burnt a bull as a sin offering for atonement. So these instructions for ordaining the priests, they would be followed later on when the tabernacle was built. And we see it referred to later in Leviticus and in Numbers. And so this is God's ordaining and setting apart the priests to serve as a priest. Not just anybody could serve a priest. You had to be a Levite and you had to be, go, go through this process. But it wasn't just the priests who experienced ordination in some sense. There's also the prophets who were ordained to serve the Lord as messengers of God. Now, just as God chose the Levites to be priests and they were publicly verified, so also God chose specific men as prophets. And they also had a form of public verification. Let me just give you one example. Take Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, 5. This is probably one of the easiest ones to see. God tells Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah had a calling and appointment on his life long before he was ever born. He's going to be a prophet. But this word appointed is the same concept as ordaining, being set apart. God set him apart. Even before he was born, this is what his office was going to be. He was going to be a prophet. Okay, so there's God's appointing, God's ordaining of him. How then was a prophet ordained or publicly verified by the people that he actually was God's prophet? Well, Deuteronomy gives us some insight of that. Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22, listen to this. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word, the, the word that the Lord has not spoken? 
When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. God gives them a layout of how to determine who's a true prophet or not. A true prophet will speak truth. What they prophesy will come to pass. If it doesn't come to pass, they're not a true prophet. There's many men who claim to be God-called prophets, but we're not. And so verification of this, it is primarily in whether they prophesied truth or not. And so the people were to conclude who was a true prophet of the Lord. Who can we trust with the message of God? Now, Jeremiah is a prime example of God affirming his call compared to those of his day. You read through the book of Jeremiah and what's happening in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is prophesying, judgment's coming, Babylon's coming, everything's going to be destroyed. There's other prophets in Jerusalem saying, nah, God's not going to bring no judgment. Nah, we're good. God is good with us right now. Which one came true? Jeremiah, right? So false prophets, true prophets. The same is true today. You've got false preachers and true preachers. Some who are truly called of God and being used of Him, some who are false, not called of God, but trying to do some kind of spiritual thing that has nothing to do with what God has intended. So, when we look at this, with the true prophet, there had to be consistency in their prophetic messages. But nevertheless, the verification of a God-called prophet was something to be evident among the people. So, this idea, this concept, this principle of ordination being set apart for a ministry towards God We see it in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament thing. But that brings us to understanding it for our own day. Notice with me letter B, we see ordination in the New Testament. This is the principle. I'm laying the the foundation for understanding just the principle of ordination in the Scriptures. Now, I want you to remember this. Ordination involves two aspects. God's calling upon a man into the ministry and the people of God recognizing that calling as legitimate. Now, this concept of ordination in the New Testament is seen in several instances. We see it in the ministry of Christ and in the church after his ascension. We've already seen briefly in our opening text how that Christ told his disciples, I've chosen you and I've appointed you. He ordained, appointed, set them apart for a specific task, for a specific office, if you will. Now, this stems back backwards to early in his ministry. If you go with me to the book of Mark, we see it again. Go with me to the book of Mark for a moment. You're going to get your, get your finger workout in tonight, all right? So just bear with me. Mark 3 and verse 13 through 15. This is back in the ministry of Jesus, and uh, we know that Jesus had a point in his ministry where he chose out who's going to be his 12. There wasn't just 12 people following him. There was a lot of people that followed Jesus, some for the right reasons, some for the wrong reasons. But ultimately, he's going to make a decision, and he's going to ordain a specific number of individuals for a specific purpose. Mark 3, 13 and 15, he went up onto the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. There's the office. So that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what do you see in this text? He called to him who he desired. This is Christ's choice, not theirs. This is Christ's choice. And what's he do? He appointed 12, appointed. This is the key word I want you to see as we come through these texts. It may be translated as ordained. It's the same thing, appointed or ordained. But notice what he ordains them to do. 
He gives them a specific function and purpose. He says that he has appointed them to be with him, and then he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what do you read through this? Not just anyone could just volunteer and say, oh, I'm going to be one of your 12. I'm going to be one of your apostles. No, Jesus specifically made that choice himself. He's the one dictating this. He chose them. He consecrated them. They are divinely and publicly ordained for this. Now, we see the same truth with the Apostle Paul. Look with me at 1 Timothy 2.7 for a moment. 1 Timothy 2.7, and notice how Paul describes himself. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 7. Notice that Paul says here to Timothy, he says, for this I was appointed, there's the key word, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, notice what Paul's claiming here. Word used for appointed, also translated as ordained, it's the same word Jesus uses in John 15, 16 to assign to some task or function. And Paul here is testifying that he has been chosen and consecrated to the ministry of preacher and apostle. This is God's ordaining of him. Remember, there's a divine side and a human side. This is God's ordaining of him. But consider how that might have appeared to the early church. Paul walks into a church service and he says, Hey guys, I'm saved and... I'm a preacher, and God told me I'm an apostle now. Imagine how that might have went over. What was Paul before he was converted? He was the chief enemy of the church. He's hauling away Christians to jail. Uh, He's got blood on his hands. How easily would the church have believed that this is really a true conversion, a true call? Well, here's what we find in the Scriptures. If you look at Acts 9 for a moment, God gave confirmation of God's calling to the church, affirming it first to Ananias, and then also to Barnabas, and then to the apostles in Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem. Acts 9, 26 through 28 says, When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. How many of us have probably been in that same boat? Most of us probably would have. I would have had my red flag up, right? I don't know, this guy's probably playing the Christian to get in get in and get at us. But what do we find here? Who's God got anointed to use to help him? Verse 27, but Barnabas, good old Barnabas, the encourager. But Barnabas took him and brought him where? To the apostles, the early leaders of the church, and declared to them how that on the road they, he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So at first, Paul has a rejection by the disciples. We don't know if this guy's legit or not. But he had already, God had confirmed his call to Ananias, to Barnabas, then to the apostles. And now Paul is in and out of the church in Jerusalem. It's confirmed to them too that he has truly been called of God. So you find that. Now, that's, Paul, that's, that's the divine side. Now we see for a moment the other side of ordination. Other side of our nation. Remember, you have God with his divine call. That's his anointing. That's his ordaining. But then the other side of ordination is when God's people recognize 
and accept God's call upon a man of the ministry that has been called of God. That's what we find with Paul. He's kind of a combo here. When God's church, especially through the leadership of the church, sees God calling upon a man and his readiness for the ministry, they ordain him or appoint him into the gospel ministry in whatever office it is that God has been calling this man. Now, this was the practice of Paul and his ministry helpers as they planted churches. There in your notes, you look at Acts 14.23. As they're coming through these churches that they've established, notice what happens. When they had appointed elders. Now, what are elders? Elders are pastors. Elders, bishop, pastor, overseer, same word, same function, right? Same office. But Paul and his ministry team, they have appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what do you see here? Paul and his team, they are ordaining or appointing elders in this church, in not just one church, but these churches, plural, that he's been working in. The word appointed here means to elect or choose someone for definite offices or tasks. A lot of different Greek definitions that convey really the same principle here that are in your notes. So this, this, this term actually is typically used with an assembly or, or communi- a community voting to put someone into office. But in this case, we find it was apostolic authority that put them to place. But notice how this shows us the side of God's people in ordaining a person into the office of elder or pastor. Give you another example. This is what Paul instructed Titus to do. Go with me to Titus chapter 1 and verse number 5. Titus 1 and verse 5, one of the pastoral epistles. And notice what Paul tells Titus. Titus 1 and verse 5. You'll notice that he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there you have the same thing. Paul is telling Titus that he needs to go into these towns, which is reference to the churches in the towns, because you don't appoint elders to a town, they're appointed to a church, but there's churches in these towns of Crete. Go appoint or ordain, set apart elders in those churches, because every church needs elders. Every church needs pastors, at least one. Now, you'll find often there's a plurality in the Scriptures, but it's not demanded. But we find that a church must have a pastor. A church must have an elder or elders, plural, whatever God providentially provides for that particular body of believers. And so Titus here, Titus is to appoint them. Word appoint means to assign someone to a position of authority, that particular Greek term. So so you can see through this, ordination... It authenticates God's calling upon a fully qualified man to serve God and His people. And through these texts that we've looked at, you can see there's a biblical principle, a concept of ordination from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament with how God's laid this out. Now, here's what I want us to understand too. The Scriptures do not give us a one, two, three, four checklist of how to go about an ordination. You know what that means? That means that churches have liberty in how they're going to conduct it so long as it's in the means of the biblical prescription. 
So it's not like, well, to have an ordination, you have to do it on a Saturday, or you have to do it on a Sunday, or you have to have this or have to have that. Churches have liberty in how they're going to conduct it, okay? And so in our getting ready to conduct an ordination, I have sought to try to do as best to my ability to make it as biblical as possible. That's what we want. We want it to be as biblical as possible in how we do it. So, the fundamental principles of ordination must be followed in this. Now, notice with me number two, and this gets into more some of the practicalities of, of this. I wanted to give you an overview, look at ordination, appointing, that it's a biblical principle. But notice with me number two, the biblical process of ordination. So, these would be the governing principles or guidelines that we ought to understand when it comes to ordaining someone. There's three things here that I think are essential. The first one's this, a proper candidate to ordain into the ministry. There must be a proper candidate. Now, who can be ordained into the gospel ministry? Can just anyone be ordained into the most holy and high office in the world? Not at all, friend. Yet, what do you find today? You find many people being ordained by the church, quote-unquote, who are not qualified, have no business being ordained. Women are not to be ordained. Homosexuals are not to be ordained. And yet that's what we find in our culture. Now, I can tell you right now that churches that do that, they are either a false church or they're far in left field from following the biblical principles they're supposed to be following. So here's some simple prerequisites of a proper candidate for ordination. One is the candidate must be truly born again. That's, non, that's, that's non-negotiable. What business would an unbeliever have in seeking the office, an office role in the church? None. What business does a person who is not sure of their own salvation have in dealing with the eternal nature of souls? None. See, the person being ordained must be saved. He should be able to give a clear, solid, biblical testimony of being converted to Christ by faith alone in Him. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him, right? He knows. And so someone going into the ministry must know for a fact that they are born again. They are regenerated. If a person is unsure of their salvation, they cannot be sure of their calling to any kind of church office. So that's number one. But secondly, the candidate must be biblically baptized, a biblically baptized member of a local church. I think that is fundamental to the Scriptures. We know the first step in following Jesus is baptism, which is also a means of uniting with a local church. But here's the reality. What business does a man have in wanting to be a pastor of a local church who has not submitted himself to the membership of one? He doesn't have any business being a, being a pastor. The local church, here, here's something I find today. The local church is, is often treated like it's some kind of a side option for the Christian. It's not. Local church membership is biblical. It is biblical and it is essential. The Hebrew writer wrote to the Hebrew Christians, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, here's what I have to ask. If church membership is unbiblical, which leaders are the Christians to be submissive to? If church membership is unbiblical, what souls are these leaders to watch over and give account for? I can't give account for every Christian that's driving down the road. I'm accountable for those that are in the local body God has placed me over. Christians must be involved in and accountable to a biblical local church. 
this, this is going to connect later at a later point. I'll expound on that a little bit, little bit later. But simply put, a candidate must be a biblically baptized member of a local church. Otherwise, he's not, he's, he doesn't meet the, qual, meet the qualification. Number three, the candidate must be called by God into the ministry. Now, this aspect is purely internal and personal between this person, this man, and God. The one who believes they're called of God. The Lord doesn't give some audible voice to those who are called or some checklist to confirm it or some, you know, airplane in the sky that shows it. It is an internal call perceived only by that one individual. This call manifested is manifested more or less in the desire of a man to enter the gospel ministry at all, particularly a specific office of the church. Now, here's one, here's one indication. Paul wrote to Timothy, and when he's talking about qualifications of a pastor, 1 Timothy 3.1, he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Notice that he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. The word aspires is also translated desire, and it, it means to seek to accomplish a specific goal. In other words, this person's desire is to fulfill the office of a pastor. That could also apply to fulfill the office of a missionary or an evangelist. He desires this. John MacArthur quoted well on this, and I'll quote him. He says, One who is qualified to be an elder will be eager to teach the word of God and lead the flock of God without any thought of gain at all. He will desire the office, pursue being set apart, and devote himself to the word. No one will have to talk him into it. It is his heart's passion. So this is his desire. Where does that desire come from? God. Just like our desire to be saved. Christian, you had zero desire to be saved until God gave you that desire. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing you to conversion. You see, the source of desire really reveals whether a man is truly called or not. Now, sadly, there are men who are pastoring or look at pastoring, look at the ministry as a profession rather than a calling. Now, in one sense, it is a profession. The church is commanded to to care for their ministers, right? That's how I make a living. But it's not always the case. Some pastors work a job and serve the church because that's what they have to do. But what I am saying is that it's not just a profession to pursue. It's a calling from God. It's not just something that, like I wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'm going to be a pastor. No, God has to give someone that call. Now, there are many men who somewhat look at the pastoral position and think it's somewhat an appealing position. He's the guy up there preaching. He's the guy leading the church. And, oh, I'd want to be a pastor. They have this aspiration wanting to be the pastor, but it's not really a call from God. They just think it looks like a great thing to do. Those kind of people will fizzle out. You know why? Because the role of a pastor, the role of the, the walk of the gospel ministry, it is not a bed of rose petals. It promises great reward eternally, but there's often a lot of trial and suffering and hard work that has to go into it. It is not for the faint of heart. And here's the reality. If you're truly called, you'll still have a desire to do that. Someone rightly said this, and I've I've heard it. Somebody's told me about it. I've heard it from other people. They said, if you can do anything other than preach and be happy, do it. If you can't, that's a good indication of your call to preach. You see, the God-called man is given a desire that grips him. He must preach, and he must minister to God's people. This is a calling upon his life. Like Jeremiah who said when, when he was 
wanted to, I'll just stop speaking of your word. What did he say? He said his word was in his bones like fire, so that he could not keep from speaking. The Holy Spirit has gripped a man who is truly called and given him a desire for the office. Now listen to what Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the pastors have made you overseers, which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, the Holy Spirit, to care for the church of God which he has obtained with his own blood. Who made them overseers? The Holy Spirit of God did. He placed that call in their life. He's the one who guided them from that. Now, I have seen men who have been talked into being a pastor or entering the ministry by a pastor. And a lot of that comes from that pastor wanting to claim that he's training a young pastor. And that pastor was not, that person really wasn't called at all. Didn't last. Seen it a lot. I know Brother Harold has too. The call of God is unmistakable and often resisted by some until God breaks them about it. When God called me to preach, I couldn't believe it. I I remember verbally saying, probably about a year before he called me to preach, I could never be a preacher. I said that. Now, if you don't want to preach, don't say that. God might call you. But I said that verbally in my mouth. I remember it a year or so later. I remember having this conviction in my heart about serving Christ. All of a sudden, I had a desire to preach. Where's this coming from? I was the shy kid. See, David, how shy he is when you talk to him. He hides, get behind my leg or whatever. You know, he don't like to be in front of people. That's how I was. And God changed that, gave me a desire, a conviction, and and enabled me to become what he called me to be. So this is the first aspect. In the process, the ordination process plainly requires a proper candidate, one who is truly converted by Christ, one who is connected in a local church as a baptized member, one who is called of God. Called of God. Letter B, in the process, a proper church to ordain the candidate. There must be a proper church to ordain the candidate. In every ordination, there is an authority that does the ordaining. Now, we've recognized the divine side of ordination. That is God's calling upon a man. That's a divine ordaining. But there's also a human side. Just as we've seen in previous texts with the apostles ordaining elders in local churches, both the divine and the human sides of ordination are important and essential. Now, there are no apostles today, but guess what is still here today? The local church. The local church. The authority for conducting the Lord's ministry rests in the local church, which is a combined work of the congregation and the elders. Jesus said to Peter in context of the church, he said in Matthew 16, 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, when you really read about keys in scriptures, keys are symbolic of authority, power. And understand that this authority is concerning the church. Not just Peter as an apostle. Now, if you want to be Catholic, make it all about Peter. Peter's the foundation church. He's the authority church. No, not. The church is the one who has been invested with the authority. The local church is the embassy of Christ's kingdom in this world, charged with upholding the truth, carrying out the Great Commission, keeping the ordinances, and worshiping the king. 
And so, given this authority, it is the responsibility of each local church to recognize men that God has called and gifted for the work of the ministry. It is not the biblical pattern for a preacher just to jump into an office or jump out and start a new work outside of any connection to the local church. It's just not. We have a good example of this in Acts 13. Look at Acts 13 with me for a moment. Acts 13, verse 1 through 3. Here we find Paul and Barnabas being set apart by the church for a specific work. I think it's one of the clearest examples. It is a pattern. It is not a mandate, but I believe patterns are good examples to follow, good safeguards. Acts 13, 1-3, notice that it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, the Cyrene, Manaean, the li- a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, what do you notice about this text? Paul and Barnabas are worshiping and laboring where? The church in Antioch. That is a specific local body of believers in a specific place. What happens next? The Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I have called them. Who did the Spirit make this calling clear to? Paul and Barnabas or the local church in Antioch? My answer is yes. Both of them. It was clear to both. And what are they to do with them? The Spirit says to the church, set apart these two men for this work that I've called them to. Which is another way of saying they were ordained or set apart for that. Ordaining, setting apart, same, same concept. They were being ordained, set apart for the work as missionaries. And so in this text, we see the divine calling to two specific people and a human recognition of that calling by the local church in setting apart those men called by the church. They did that after they fasted and prayed. And what, is they, what, is, what do we see they do? They laid their hands on them. That looks a lot like an ordination service today if you've ever been to one. And so I think that as you look through this, it is always a safeguard to run through the authority of the local church. And that's why on Saturday, during the ordination, we as a church will motion to ordain Jared. Because that's not in my authority to ordain you. Even though we have a called presbytery, he's coming out of Leak Creek Baptist Church. We as Leak Creek are motioning, saying we approve of this young man, based on all that we've seen in him. I'll get into that in just a minute. So Paul and Barnabas, though called by the Holy Spirit, were sent out by the authority of the church in Antioch. They didn't jump out without congregation, uh, without the recognition of the church's authority and approval. Why? Because both of them should work together for the same purpose and calling. Now, I understand there are some churches that can be absolutely ridiculous and just refuse to ordain somebody because they're crazy. And if that's the case, that man needs to go on somewhere and find somewhere else to associate with and go forward. He needs to follow his God-given call. But ultimately, there is a connection between the authority of the local church and the ministers God calls. Lester Hudson, a friend and mentor of mine years ago, said, Ministers are neither above the church nor independent of it. Ordination is a minister's public testimony of submission to God through his church. And so since ordination requires a proper candidate and a proper church, this points us to how the church truly identifies a man called by God 
beyond conversion and on this professed calling into the ministry. And that brings me to letter C. There must be a proper conclusion about the candidate. A proper conclusion about the candidate. Now, since the church is the authority to ordain, it is the church's responsibility to examine the man, especially by the current pastors and elders in the church, the current leadership. Now, not every church has more than one ordained man to evaluate a candidate. Often, a council of ordained ministers of like faith and practice will unite together to examine the candidate and give their approval on the man to be ordained by the local church that, they've, that he's coming out of. And that's somewhat of the process we're following in our own ordination. We had a council of ordained men of like faith and practice to sit down and examine Jared thoroughly. But not only has Jared been examined thoroughly by us, Jared also has been among this church for a large part of last year. So we know him. That's the other important side of this. The church body knows him. But when we see this, the council, also called a presbytery, they're they're the ones that are laying their hands upon them, showing their approval of him. They are ordained men who have also gone through this same process. In Timothy, Paul said to Timothy regarding this in 1 Timothy 4.14, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So you find there's a laying on of hands that is a, it's symbolic of approval. Approval. Now, in that day and time, there was such a thing as conferring spiritual gifts through apostles. That's not something to be done anymore. But ultimately, it is a symbol of approval. We approve of this man. We approve of him going out into the ministry and serving. So what must the council of elders know about the candidate to approve his ordination to the church? Is it evident the candidate's truly called? Is it evident the candidate is truly ready? How can the church know these things? God has given clear, objective marks to determine if a man is qualified and ready for the gospel ministry. We see them in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 7, as well as Titus 1, 5 through 9. But I want to read Timothy's edition, the the passage in Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. Let's go there for a moment. 1 Timothy 3. And notice that it says, this is, a, this is where Paul's giving this instruction to Timothy. This, this saying is trustworthy. If one, anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. We've already covered that somewhat. But notice these prerequisites, these requirements. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Now, all of these requirements show how important it is for the candidate to be ready for this office, to be ready for ordination. And we could sum this up by, in, in, in five simple sections, and I, I borrow these from, from Richard Mayhew, if that's how you pronounce his name, but I thought they were a good way of summarizing them. We see his character in this text. His character must be consistent with his calling and the message he preaches. Character is woven into this text, especially the first few verses. How can the church know his character if he's not been an active member among them and submitted to the local church? 
there's where you find that most ordinations come from people that have been among us, so that we know them. Secondly, his conduct. His conduct must demonstrate domestic order in a godly home. His spiritual maturity. He's not a recent convert. His reputation outside the church. His conduct, his behavior, his lifestyle. We see also his creed. What is his creed? His creed is, uh, is, is, his, uh, his, creed is his grounding and understanding of doctrine. Does he know the truth and can he defend it? Remember what the church is. The church, Paul says, is a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. If he is to lead the church to be that, he must know the truth himself. How can a pastor lead a church to hold up the truth if he does not know it himself? Paul adds to this in the pastoral requirements to Titus. In Titus 1.9, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Someone who is not doctrinally grounded is not fit, not ready. They need to be ready because they're going to have an assault of things come upon them when it comes to truth. His capabilities. Number four, Paul plainly says in verse three that he must be able to teach. Beyond that, just what the office of pastor requires, he's got to be able to shepherd the flock, provide oversight for the flock, provide leadership for the flock, compassion, feeding the flock. He is to be the faithful steward of God's ministry. If he's not able to fulfill the role of pastor, he's not ready to be ordained. Fifthly, his commitment. He must demonstrate consistency in his Christian life and practice. What we see in these things, they should be consistent in his life. He shouldn't be a really holy Christian one day and a godless Christian the next, if there is such a thing. There should be consistency in his life in which he lives. And I will tell you right now that as we look at what these qualifications are, we look at what's required of a pastor, Jared has been fully and thoroughly vetted by us. Harold can testify. I got a six-page document right here to show you. He's been thoroughly examined. He's ready. I'll testify on his behalf. He's ready. I think as you look at verse 10 with the deacons, that they must be tested first. I think that applies also. Applies also to the overseers. Now, it is true, I think, that some examining can go overboard. But one thing's for sure is that when it comes to defending the faith, it must be thorough. You understand that ordination is the safeguard of the gospel ministry through the local church. It is basically what the bar exam is to the legal profession or the state board exam to the medical practice. You think about how important those practices are and what they handle. You understand the church is responsible for whom they ordain and whom they ordain will be caring for eternal souls. It's important for us to make sure that whoever we ordain is ready. It's not a light matter. Nowadays, you can go online, pay $25, and get your ordination certificate. That's not how it's done. There's too many men that are put into pulpits because they professed a call and they got a degree from a seminary. Those things don't make you ready, even if you have a degree from a seminary. By all means, I love seminaries. I think it's good. Go study, get education. But that's not what ordains you. It'll contribute to you being ready doctrinally, but ultimately it comes down to the local church ordaining you. And so a church must follow the biblical pattern and prescriptions for who they ordain. There's accountability with this, and notice this in Timothy. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.22, Do not be hasty in laying, a hands, laying on of hands. 
nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. You know what he's saying? Don't be quick to just put your approval on somebody. Because if he goes out and messes up, there's a fallback to you too. We're accountable for who we approve with the authority we have into the gospel ministry. Number three, and lastly, very quickly, the biblical privilege of ordination. Letter A, it's an occasion that should be reverenced. You understand there's no business as serious and sacred as the Lord's work. It is an eternal work, and Jesus said himself in his ministry, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming and no one can work. It is a temporal work in the fact that it, it will fade with the passing of this age. And so in an ordination, understand that we are setting aside a man for that sacred, holy work. It is something we ought to reverence. Reverence and cherish. But also, letter B, it's an occasion that reflects God's continued work. Now, it's a sad reality when we, when we come to think about how that it seems that ministers and faithful pastors, men qualified, they're fewer and fewer. We don't see ordinations frequent, do we? Somewhat of a rare occasion. We need to be honored with each ordination and to pray for more laborers. Jesus himself said, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray, Lord of the harvest, that he would send laborers into his harvest. But here's what ordination teaches us. Despite the fact that it seems few laborers are being called, God is not done calling laborers. He's not. He never will be until Christ comes. And so every ordination that we see or we hear of or we get to participate in, it reflects that God's still calling men to serve him. He's still working in men, qualifying them to ordain them. So ordination, church, it is clearly a biblical concept and practice of God's people, particularly in the church in this age. It's a wonderful thing. It's a privilege for us. I am thrilled that we get the opportunity to do that together. And um, so be much in prayer for that, that special service uh, this coming Saturday, and I hope this has been a benefit to help you understand exactly what ordination is all about.